Hi, this is Julia Macher. Just a heads up that this episode of New Classical Tracks contains content that may be upsetting to some listeners, including a conversation about the sexual assault of a minor. Violinist Lara St. John's new recording is called She, Her, Hers. It's a celebration of women in music and also about the power of speaking one's truth. Lara commissioned some composers and highlighted a few others in a celebration of women on this new recording. And that's what we're going to hear about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Lara, I was just looking when you and I last spoke, and you were actually my first interview during COVID in April of 2020, after we had kind of put everything on a big pause for over a month there. And it was right here in my COVID closet studio, and I'm still here. (laughs) Not all the time. We are starting to do some interviews in, uh, in the studio now, too, but I happen to be at home today. And that's the last time we spoke. You and your iguana Mm -hmm. were sheltering in place in your apartment. And Mm -hmm. so I guess my first question for you is, how are you? It's been a while. Um, I am pretty good, actually. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that that time in April 2020, that was, especially in New York City, that was a really scary time, you know, with all the refrigeration trucks. And also, that was still before anybody kind of knew how it was getting passed. And I mean, it was just, it was... It was a bad time. But um, in the past year or two, um, well, I guess year and a half, things have been pretty much back to normal for me, more or less, at least in the past six months, for sure. And the recording that you have just released also evolved during COVID. Mm -hmm. It's titled She, Her, Hers, and it's part of a much bigger mission for you. Would you talk more about that, please, and set the stage for us as we get ready to talk about the recording itself? Well, it's, for a long time, it had has been coming to my attention that um, the world of classical music is um, sort of systematically structured against women, generally, in, in very many parts of it, I would say specifically, in this case, what I was trying to do something about was um, composition. It seems as though it's about 95% to 5%. And, um, you know, some orchestras, obviously, and some presenters are doing much, much better very, very recently. And those are some nice baby steps. But there's the fact that for the past 300 years of what we supposedly call Western art music, there have been basically no female composers whatsoever because, in my opinion, it's because it was just not encouraged to have your own ideas and to be innovative and to and to create for women. It was encouraged to, you know, be little baby factories and, and, and cook and, and stay home. So that obviously is a great concern because, in my opinion, we are we are not hearing the ideas of 52% of the population. And so I thought, well, if I can do a a little bit to get some stuff out there, uh, why don't I? I own my own label, and um, for years I've been um, trying to include 
music by women in, in, in programs. And I just kind of thought, look, you know, there's so much great stuff out there for solo violin. Why don't I just make a recording of it? So I have 17 tracks on this album by 12 different composers. And basically, these are just the ones that I felt that I could really do with pure integrity. But um, there, there's just so much else out there, a lot of it written in the past 20 years. But I also went back and uh, looked at Micheline Colomb de Saint-Marcou, who was um, basically at the same time as Boulez. I think what she wrote in that, in that style is equal, if not better, than most of the men at that time. But of course, she's not known at all because she was a woman. And also, for example, Eckhart Gramate, who died, I think, in the, in the 70s. Uh, she, she was a violinist, a pianist, and a, and a terrific composer. And nobody outside of Manitoba has ever heard of her. <laughs> so I wanted to change that. I thought uh, you know, she wrote 10 brilliant caprices for violin. So I, I included three of those on this. And, and then, of course, uh, there's a whole bunch of, of, of very, very much alive uh, people writing today that I think their music should be better heard and 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 just more out there so i've also done a couple of live performances of all of it which is uh, you know it's hard these things are not that easy but it's i find it very very satisfying to do i'm going to dig in more on all of those issues but i'm curious though you know when we think about i mean there are some historically some women who are represented in the classical canon i mean we think of fanny mendelssohn and clara schumann what about those artists? I mean, how do they fit into the grand scheme of this? Well, don't you find, though, that they really were only kind of half-heartedly encouraged? You know, the way Felix Mendelssohn was basically given an orchestra by his father, and Fanny was kind of like sort of a... a for me, the, the encouragement and the whatever fame she had in her lifetime kind of just came as being second fiddle, so to speak, um, to her brother. And I find the same for, for Clara Schumann. You're like, yes, she wrote, she wrote some really great stuff, which is now being performed, uh, which wasn't for years, basically because she was a woman. But then she also had to take a backseat to her husband. And of course, uh, these days, Florence Price is getting the, the, the praise and the exposure that she so deserved. But I mean, even more than just being a woman, she was a woman of color at a time when when both of those things were a disaster in classical music. So it's it, it's perfectly reasonable. I mean, no, it's not reasonable, but it's understandable that she was hardly known in her own lifetime. So yeah, they do exist, but they're they're very few and far between. And I just think that the fact that it was so discouraged to have ideas um, that's the reason why we don't have more from from that era. And the discouragement has continued, I think, into very much into this century. Um, the institutions, which, well, I mean, if you want to get me started on that, that's going to be a whole other uh, situation. Because as you know, I'm not... Well, yeah. let's, yeah, I mean, I'm really curious from a broader perspective. I mean, if you think it's critical to mm -hmm. this conversation, I would love your insight on that, Lara. I do. Well, just as a little bit of background, I think I should probably give for, for listeners who obviously may not know this about me. I became um, public about the fact that I was abused and raped at the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia when I was 14 years old. Um, at 15 years old, I told the dean in order to get out of that position of having to have, still have a lesson with my rapist, and he laughed at me. 
And so long story short, eventually I just found I had to leave the school, although they finally changed my teacher, but I had to beg and cry. And um, I, I left the school at 17. I graduated as soon as I could. And um, uh, over the years, things kept coming back. Um, and I once again, I spoke to a counselor about it in the 90s. And then the wife of the then director, her name was Naomi Grafman, called me to say, well, there's no need to tell anyone about this. You know, it's just, uh, he's almost dead and it's just no problem. And and then again in um, 2013, when that dean decided to make himself out to be like a saint and protector of children on some blog, I wrote a, a very, very accusatory nine-page letter to the now director of Curtis, Roberto Diaz. And um, he did nothing. Nobody did anything. Nothing changed at any point. And they never, nobody ever apologized to me. And so finally I decided, well, you know, the only way to do it right is to to just scream from the rooftops. And so I've been doing that ever since the 5,000-word article came out in, uh, in July of 2019 in the Philadelphia Inquirer. And because of that, a lot of people got in touch with me. And some of it's very private. Some people are open about their names. But I, I happen to be in the possession of knowledge that this is happening today, still all over the world, that men are taking advantage of their position of power in musical institutions. And the institutions are completely complicit. What they want is the name of these men that they have somehow deified and the student is of no consequence. And it, it ruins a lot of women's lives. And it also, um, it, it, it creates a brain drain in the industry. You know, you, you look at sort of the conductors, composition, the principals and orchestras, um, and you, you say, where are the women? Well, <laughs> you know, I can explain where quite a few of them went, for sure, because it's just, it's a very, very tough thing to deal with in any case. And then you know, you're supposed to, like, do everything your teacher says. And it just, it messes up one's head for various reasons, sexual abuse, and then and then it messes up one's relationship with music. And so a lot of people, I, I know of many suicides, and um, I also know of a lot of people who have just left the field, some who can't even listen to music anymore. And in what way is that fair? It simply isn't. And so I've kind of become, you know... A, I don't know, sort of, like I said, somebody who screams from the rooftops about this issue. And <clears throat> I'm also um, in the midst of a, of a documentary. I went and spoke to some of these women, and I, I talked to them myself. I filmed it all myself, did all the editing. And um, because it just, that's the only way to really talk to somebody is to, to speak to somebody who knows what you've been through from the inside out, who knows the profession, who understands all of that. And, and so I got some, some amazing, I mean, heartbreaking, but amazing stories from, from some amazing women. And I'm really looking forward to putting that out in 2023. I guess, um, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of work to get to this point. Mm -hmm. What... What was it that finally got you to shout from the rooftops? I mean, where did you develop a, that uh, sense of courage or bravery to do that? <laughs> well, it was a little bit, uh, I think it was a, a, a myriad of, of small reasons, really. There was sort of the, the Me Too thing that was happening. It was a little bit of a zeitgeist, you know, in, in 2019. Um, I'm old enough to remember the uh, Anita Hill 
And I was watching the Kavanaugh trials, and that made me seethe. And I mean, the fact that the highest court in the country has two sexual predators on it, that's, that is really disturbing to someone like me. And it was also, there was a, a 2018 Washington Post article about Bill Prusel, you know, another open secret that everybody knew about for years, about Charles Dutois. Everybody knew about that for years. You know, nobody did anything. And when I saw that finally that article had some influence because, you know, finally Prusel got fired, um, he didn't suffer anything other than getting fired, though. I mean, this is underage women that we're talking about. And, um, you know, he still probably lives at home and cuddles his cat. And I don't think that that should be the case. I think that people should get rather more punishment, like in the case of Stephen Ships, who just went to jail a couple of uh, months ago for uh, basically for five years, for 40 years of complaints against him and also underage women. So, you know, even when these people get shouted out, it it still doesn't really do anything. I don't think it's much of a deterrent. (laughs) You know, you rape children for 40 years and you get five years in jail That's because of the primeval statute of limitations in Michigan, where he went after for 20 years after having done this for 20 years at North Carolina School of the Arts. So that's what I mean by the complicity of the institutions. They knew very well why he had to leave North Carolina School of the Arts, but they didn't care. They were like, oh, he's got a big name, so we'll just hire him for 20 years, where he continued raping underage women, girls. And I mean... That's what really, and I see this and I know of it happening in other places all over the world, and um, there's just nothing else for me to do. I have to, I just have to be incredibly vocal about this because it's, it's, it's just, it's not an even playing field for women in this profession and with these institutions. And I call it predator whack-a-mole. That's basically what happens. You know, there, there was a guy in, in Holland, a guy named Jan Rupko, and he was literally kicked out of the country 20 years ago for doing this. Um, a, a young woman was, was raped by him. And, um, and then he went to England and he got three more jobs, <laughs> which have only just recently been terminated. So for 20 more years, he was allowed to do the same thing. I call it predator whack-a-mole, you know, perfected by the Catholic Church. And apparently, like, happily taken over by classical music. So it's really time to start putting women's lives above men's art. You mentioned that some women have left the field altogether under these circumstances. Mm-hmm. What allowed you to stay? Why were you, why, where, you know, what was it that allowed you to find the strength, the courage, or the passion, perhaps, to stay in the classical music field? Again, it's, a th- I think, a combination of things. But one of them is I started very, very young. I was two and a half years old. And so to me, music was more like a language than it was something learned. You know, I just, I don't remember learning how to do a whole bunch of things, which is why I'm now a terrible teacher, because I sit there going like, I don't know why you can't do this. What the hell? What's wrong with you? You know, (laughs) not very encouraging. But I think because of that, even though it could have been ruined for me, I think it was so innate and ingrained that that somehow music made it past those horrible 
teenage years. Um, that being said, I have a really weird, I've had a really weird life. You know, when I left Curtis, I went to the Soviet Union because I wanted to get a, a, an ocean and an iron curtain between myself and that school. Um, and I did. And so, of course, it was a whole different trajectory than what would have happened had I been allowed to have the choice to actually stay and get a bachelor's degree at a school, which is free, <laughs> you know, but I wasn't allowed that, that decision. Um, the decision I made, I think is very, very good. I went to the Soviet Union. I think if I hadn't done that and sort of, sort of restarted my life in a different way, I don't believe I would be alive today. I think I would be one of the casualties. Um, which is, which is why it's, I mean, it's, it's easier for me to talk to some of the women who have left the music school and who have developed, uh, there's a lot of problems, you know? And, and I mean, it just, it does such terrible things to your psyche and your sense of self-worth and, and, and just, and, and your life for the rest of your life that it's the only way to have it not affect women is to have it never have happened. And that's what I want to happen in my lifetime is for these institutions to stand up and say, that's it. We've got to stop this. And they're still not doing it. So, you know, I'm just going to keep on screaming over here. <laughs> Shouting from the rooftops. Yeah. Well, Lara, let's dive into your new recording. There are works on this new release that present new violinistic ideas. Can you talk a little bit about some of those unusual ideas and maybe give some examples about where we hear them? Well, for example, Milica Paranosic is the first track. She and I have been friends for years and kind of originally bonded over our mutual love of Serbian Roma music and, and music from that area. And so she wrote this one for me and she used traditional Macedonian rhythms, you know, odd rhythms. And then at one point she said, so here's, I want this effect here. How can you do this? And can you do it, can you do it with foot bells? Can you do it with this? And so I just sort of figured out like different ways of, of being able to play a theme, but still pits, uh, still doing pizzicato on the, with the left hand. And so that is kind of like accompanying oneself. Um, and little tricks like that in solo violin, um, obviously, you know, you're missing the bass and, and an accompaniment. So um, I like to try to figure out how to accompany myself uh, when needed. So there's a little bit of that. There's Valerie Coleman, for example. I've been a big fan of hers for 20 years, and um, and she wrote a, a gorgeous flute piece, which once I just sat down and worked out some stuff, I figured out how I can do this on violin. I can even do flutter tone. And I can do the... So there's a little bit of that. There's a, a Lori Anderson. She said, oh, I think this would be really cool if you want to kind of set this yourself. Just do... She gave me carte blanche, basically. And so I set her Statue of Liberty for solo violin and Tibetan bells. 
you know, the bowls that they, they have, those beautiful sounds that go right into your, right into your uh, solar plexus somehow. I don't know how those Tibetans do that, but it's a pretty incredible sound. Um, and so I thought that turned out really well. So just, you know, just sitting down and for me, I have in my head the sound that I want to achieve. And then I just sort of figure out how to do it. And so, yeah, so there's some very kind of newfangled ideas for violin in this recording. I wanted to dive into that Laurie Anderson piece a little bit more. You actually collected Tibetan bowls. Uh, I, have, I have two of them, which are as close as I could find to basically G and D. <laughs> it's, it's hard to say because there's, there's so many little... Uh, uh, extra kind of sounds in them it's hard to say exactly what note it is but um in my opinion these are yeah i i went and tried a whole bunch of them at, at various places and uh was looking for g and d and yeah i mean it, it's even just kind of listening to it with headphones or something you get this kind of sense of of stillness and peace I mean, that's, that's, I think that's what they're used for. I'm not exactly a meditative person. I don't, you know, sit around and sing Om or something. But those bowls are, are really made to, to, to vibrate, I think, with one's... Oh, people would probably use the word chakra in this case. Um, I also am not very good at yoga, so... <laughs> I'm not sure. But it does do something to you. Like, it's really cool. And... Um, and she, she was really into it, actually. I've known her for quite a few years. And, um, yeah, she thinks it's, uh, it's great. I was thinking the piece is kind of a meditation when I listened to it. Do you know why it's called Statue of Liberty? The original lyrics are, uh, just, to, just to summarize, they're about the fact that most people don't really want it, liberty. And the fact that those who have it don't appreciate it and the idea of like the boats going past and into the cold water and into the you know it's just it's 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 quite touching and you know she just had new york harbor in her mind and she she lives in new york she lives down there right right by uh you know west side highway and and the statue and i think that was just uh she watched the boats come in and out and, and think of the fact that we're really not appreciative of what it is we have at least, well, hopefully continue to have. I guess time will tell. There are several world premiere recordings on this release, and I guess for obvious reasons, they were written for you, so it's the first time they're being heard. One of them is Ada Kaplan's piece, which is called Whitewashed, and it's a very heartfelt piece. And... She thought it was a, a bit too hard to record herself. <laughs> yeah. But she actually wrote to you. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this, because she's only like a 
young teenager. Yeah, she was she was 14 when she wrote to me and she said, um, hi, I'm I don't know you, but I'm a composer and, and, a, and a violinist. And I wrote a piece that that I really want to like present to a I think it was just some sort of a, a maybe a little competition or something for her school. And she said, it's just I, I wrote it a little bit too hard and I don't sound good. Can you record it for me? So I said, sure, you know, it's the middle of COVID and it's a, it's a very sweet little piece um and she was 14 years old and she's from philadelphia so you know of course 14 years old philadelphia i was like "Mm, this has to somehow be a little more fateful than a coincidence (laughs) so um anyway and one of her composition teachers is melissa dunphy who also wrote a great piece for solo violin called comos who's also on the album so the whole thing just kind of i don't know it just kind of came together really sort of serendipitously, if that is a word. I think it is. Should be. <laughs> Let's talk about Melissa Dunphy's piece because you were staying at her Airbnb and then all of a sudden... One night, here was this piece of music on your doorstep. Tell us this story. Well, yeah, I I went to go meet her because I had heard about... She does a lot of political choral works. Um, for example, she has actually set um, a, a lot of the transcript of the Anita Hill and uh, Christine Blasey Ford um, hearings um, for soprano and alto chorus. And I was, I was just kind of fascinated. And so we were Facebook friends and I said, Hey, I'm coming into Philly for this, that, and the other. And of course, little did she know it was, it was to meet with uh, Peter Dobrin. And I was talking about the story that eventually came out and um, we've just been fast friends ever since. And yeah, she left this on the doorstep. I was leaving early in the morning to go back to New York and I find this, uh, this piece called Comos. The, The name actually means beating as in of the chest in great agony or great joy. Like it comes from the Greek plays of, um, of many thousands of years ago. And I, I just, I, I love how in a way it's, it's exuberant and it, it, it is kind of, it, it's, it's sort of painful in a way, but, but just so well-spoken. She also said about the title, which, as you said, translates to mean either terror, agony, or joy. She said, seems like you've had a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, she, she left the piece on my doorstep after uh, we had been out um, the night before, and, and I told her the whole Philadelphia story. And um, being a Philadelphia resident and, and all that, she's she's... Well, I don't know. She and her husband have been really great and, and very helpful about, about everything in this, in this whole regard of the Curtis situation. Let's talk about The Three Caprices by the Canadian composer that you have known your entire life, Sophie Carmen Eckert Gramate. Why did you decide to choose these three pieces for this project? Oh, yeah. She, I mean, she has 10 caprices, all of which I think are, are really great. Um, and what she did was she based these 10 things on 
on things that happened to her in her lifetime. So it's all very personal in a way. And I just really like these three. I thought it made for a very nice kind of little trio. Um, so I did the, the scherz, which is, it means kind of joke or jest. She, she was just in a great mood and, and, and wrote a really adorable sort of three-minute piece that's, that's just fun and sprightly and happy. And then the, the sickness and the clock. which is a slow and very sad one. She was apparently um, at the bedside of a friend and there was a big clock in the background and that was ticking and, and, and the friend was dying and, and just her, her reaction to that, she managed to put into music. And then the last one was Moroccan Dance. And the Moroccan Dance, she was in the city of Melilla, which is actually on the uh, African continent. It belongs to Spain, but it's in Morocco. And she saw a, a beautiful girl dancing at the marketplace, at the docks, when she was going back to the European mainland, and it just stuck with her. And, and she composed a Moroccan dance on the boat back to Spain. So, I don't know, just like it's, it's very, a lot of the other ones are, you know, the lights of Philadelphia at night. That's after she performed with Stokowski and the Philly Orchestra. And she was pretty well known as a performer in her day, and uh, both piano and violin. So... I call those people overachievers. Yeah, <laughs> I'm such a one-trick pony. But um, but yeah, in Canada, she's she's quite well known, and I've, I've just always been astonished that outside of of Canada, nobody's even heard her name. And these are ten really nice pieces that every violinist should know. I think. The final piece on this recording is another world premiere, and it was composed by your audio engineer. Now, is this <laughs> yeah. a first? I mean, this seems like an unusual thing to happen. Can you talk a little bit about that final piece, Together Alone? Yeah, well, Laura DeRover is, she's also a singer, songwriter, and composer, as well as um, an audio engineer and, um, and a mixer. So she... <laughs> She does a lot of things. She's originally from um, from North Netherlands. And um, yeah, she became kind of a neighbor during COVID. And then basically, long story short, this gorgeous mahogany great room was empty because an office left and it was, you know, right here in the building I live in. So I turned it into, uh, I made a series for six months with um, all sorts of chamber groups. It was, it was like, just piano free. So I had string quartets and wind quintets and stuff like that. And it was a lot of fun. And then in the summer of 2021, we turned it into a recording studio and, and did the record there. Um, 
And so I said at one point, I was like, well, you know, you, we've spent so much time together, like, you know, doing the series, doing um, the recording, doing that, like, why don't you write something? And so she sort of sat down and, 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 and thought up something. And I, I thought it was a very nice closer of a, of a little tune, a little piece with interesting ideas. Tentative in a way. And then, and then finally just going into silence. There are 12 composers on this recording, and we haven't talked about all of them. Some of them are a little better known, like Jesse Montgomery and Gabriella Lena Frank. Is there anybody else you want to be sure that we highlight as part of this conversation? Oh, yeah. Anna Sokolovic is an interesting one. She's she's a Canadian, Serbian-born Canadian composer. And I've done some stuff by her before, and it's always like just at the very edge of almost impossible. Somehow, it it's it can work, and it's always worth it. <laughs> but she's really got an individual voice; like she sounds like no other, and and I think very innovative and just like she she'll grab an idea and just and just go with it, even if it's completely mad. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, she's, she's a very, very interesting one. As you were putting this project together, what did you discover about yourself? <laughs> oh, well, hmm. I guess it's all been kind of... It's all a bit enmeshed at the moment, like, you know, working on the documentary, having all this, like, just just the whole sort of, of course, I've always been a feminist, but I think the past sort of three, four years have really brought that to the fore. And even just talking with some of the alive composers and, and, and saying, and them saying, yeah, so, you know, this is what happened to me. This is how I like the, the fact that they had to fight so much to, to, to get to where they are um, is, I mean, it's, it's just so, it's just so disappointing sometimes. I mean, yes, things are getting better, but honestly not fast enough. And I hope by the time Ada Kaplan is the age of, you know, uh, me or Jesse or Gabriella, that this, this won't be, a problem anymore, like that the playing field will then be level. You know, for example, Milica Paranosic, she taught tech at Juilliard for a long time. And when that became successful, um, the the guy who didn't do any of it, like just kind of fired her and took over that thing and, and then took all the credit for it. And and yet she was she was like, well, what can I do? I don't have money for a lawyer. I can't do this. I, I mean, stories like this, from from everybody and 
of course, you know, uh, Valerie and Jesse and Gabriella also being people of color, it just, it's, you know, twice as hard and they've, they've fought twice, twice as hard and, and, and come through with shining colors. So I have nothing but respect for, for all of these women. A new recording called She, Her, Hers with violinist Lara St. John, who's celebrating women in the world of classical music and also speaking her truth. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker.